When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't know about you, but all of a sudden, I seem to know a number of people with COVID in a way that hasn't happened in a while. Whether it's colleagues or friends or even Instagram acquaintances posting pictures of those two telltale lines on an antigen test, it made me want to call up Catherine Wu, a science writer at The Atlantic, to figure out what's going on. She recently wrote a story asking whether we're in for one more COVID summer. And I wondered if she knew people with COVID now, too. So I am hearing all of the sort of hearsay epidemiology that you're talking about. But I, for some reason, like either don't have enough friends. I don't know what. But for some reason, my bubble is so far okay. I used to be someone who like woke up in the morning and checked case counts either through my local health department or, you know, in the newspaper or on a website. And I, I don't have that to check anymore. I feel like right now I'm sort of going off of vibes. Um, huh? how, how are the vibes? You know, it really depends on who you ask, which I think is so interesting about this particular moment. You know, I agree with you. I definitely don't check the official counts as often as I used to. And I'm largely relying on I guess what my like semi-private whisper network is talking about. But there's a couple of reasons for that, right? Like we are so many years into this that I think I am no longer as frantic about checking things daily. And also so many of the official counts are gone. Like what are we supposed to look at? There's not much. There's wastewater. There are hospitalizations. There's test positivity, which is so messy now because so few people are testing. It's like, what do we have to rely on? So, you know, is it because of us and our tolerance and our habituation to this, or is it because the data's not there? Probably both. When we were getting ready to think about doing this episode, our our editorial conversation was like, oh, is there a summer surge? If I asked you, is there a summer surge, what would you say? <laughs> it's a great question. And honestly, I'm not sure I have an answer. And every time I ask an expert, like an epidemiologist, this question, they usually kind of waffle a bit because, you know, it actually depends on how you define a surge. And this is a question that I've asked people almost every season since, you know, March or February of 2020. And there's not really a clear answer. It's a little bit like the porn definition. You kind of know it when you see it, but it's not like, oh, exactly a 2.74% rise over the course of like 9.7 hours. And then that's a surge. Uh, It depends on where you're starting from. It depends, you know, uh, what you're tracking. Is it a surge of infections? Is it a surge of hospitalizations? And because the numbers are so messed up, it's totally possible that the numbers could look pretty chill by most metrics and there could be a surge of infections going on by some other metric. So I got to tell you, I think my answer is I'm not sure, just that things are increasing and that's not the way I'd like them to go. So today on the show, 
let's talk about how things are going, because COVID isn't going anywhere. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In her recent story, Catherine wrote about the idea of seasonality. Some viruses, like the flu, seem to spike in the wintertime. That's why you might get your flu shot in October. Or if you have a child in preschool, like I do, you just sort of know that the fall is going to be gross in your house. It is pretty indisputable that a lot of pathogens, you know, not just viruses, but bacteria, parasites, they have seasonality. Things that rise mainly in the winter, other things that rise mainly in the summer, and actually other things that are kind of just percolating year round. The fact that those patterns exist is pretty indisputable. The why, though, is so, so, so messy because we have to think about, you know, why do infections increase in any setting? It's always a combination of what's the virus doing? What's the host doing? That's us. And, you know, what are the factors that are bringing hosts together so that those infections can spread? So we've got immunity, host, and behavior. And all of those things are so dynamic with the seasons, within the seasons, that it's very difficult to say, oh, we have a winter flu because, um, you know, the virus has this fatty outer layer and that helps it move easier when it's cold and dry out. That's thought to be a contributing reason for why the flu spreads more easily in winter, but there's no way it's the only reason. Think of how we behave differently in the winter. Um, Think of the fact that like there's less sunlight and so there's less vitamin D. And so maybe our immune system is not uh, getting as revved up to the same degree, or it's just behaving a little bit differently. We spent so much of evolution being kind of so heavily influenced by the outside And now that we spend so much time indoors, we maybe don't see it as often, but it's so hard to say that's the reason and that's it. So that's why there's not a clear-cut answer and why we also can't predict when new pathogens are going to spike and fall. There are some sort of classic summer diseases. I mean, the one I think about is polio. Yeah. And even that, uh, people have been looking into the question of why polio is typically a summer disease for decades, Um, you know, roughly a century, maybe more, depending on who you're asking. And there's still not really a clear answer. Uh, So keep in mind that polio is transmitted fecal oral. So you're usually going to have some contaminated water involved. So maybe it's about people going to pools a lot in the summer. Maybe it's about how people socialize in the summer. Maybe it's even about the types of food that people eat in the summer. But all of these different epidemiological studies, there's never been a single smoking gun. Maybe it's all of them. Maybe it's none of them. Um, it's it's a mess. COVID makes all of this a little messier because it doesn't behave in perfect seasonal patterns. Remember how back in 2020, there was hope that it would just go away when the weather got warmer? That obviously did not happen. Indeed, each summer since then has seen a spike of some sort in infections including this one. 
Signs point to a COVID-19 summer surge once again for the fourth consecutive year. While numbers remain relatively low, the CDC is reporting hospitalizations are up 12.1% in the past week. But no one really seems to know why. I think the tentative explanations that people are putting forth now are a bunch of different things. You know, one is maybe going to have to do with some behavior. One explanation that I think people hear a lot is, oh, summer air conditioning, people are going to go indoors and indoors is where a lot of respiratory viruses spread. I have no doubt that that contributes to respiratory infections full stop. Absolutely. But also consider year-round pretty much in industrialized parts of the world like the U.S., we already spend 90% of our time indoors. Hmm. Maybe that uptick slightly in the summer, but it's not going to be enough to completely explain, you know, some of the bigger surges we've had in past years, including, you know, think of the the Delta wave um, in 2021. That was probably due in part to, uh, you know, people um, ripping off their masks after getting vaccinated and not fully appreciating that the vaccines were extremely powerful, but not quite powerful enough to stop all infections. A new variant had arrived on the scene. You know, last summer was very BA5 heavy. That was probably also due to the virus and also due to some of our social activities. That's the one we got. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So if the virus is behaving a little bit differently, it shouldn't be a shock that a wave appears. But at the same time, you know, it does seem a little counterintuitive. We do expect COVID to be a winter disease because it does have some similarities to flu and other respiratory viruses that do seem to spread better in cold and dry conditions. But I think the key here is to keep in mind that that doesn't preclude summer spread. We can sort of overwhelm meh conditions for viral spread if we're bringing ourselves together often enough in a state where a lot of us don't have a ton of immunity. And honestly, most people are not up to date on their COVID shots. What do the numbers, such as they are, show right now? You have to put this in context. There's two ways to look at the numbers. In absolute terms, the numbers, and here I'm talking, you know, wastewater, which is kind of viral concentration generally in the population that gives us a sense of infection, um, hospitalizations and test positivity, they're all still rather low. Like we are not talking a winter caliber wave. This is not like Omicron 2.0 or anything like that. Absolutely not. In absolute numbers, a lot of people should still feel okay calibrating their risk to a lower level than before. That said, there is a rise from what was a spring lull. And so even though we're not cresting to some sort of record high, an increase is still concerning. The fact that any wave is appearing at all of any magnitude does suggest that something that we're doing or something that the virus is doing or probably a little bit of both is causing infections. And that's important to know because we want to avoid that in the future somehow. Part of the problem is that the data is incomplete. Many health departments just aren't counting cases anymore. And the data that does exist, monitoring the virus in wastewater or tallying up hospitalizations, isn't comprehensive. I guess the trope with wastewater is even if we stop testing all the time, everybody poops. And so if there are infections, you are going to get a little bit of viral genetic material in the wastewater. Um, The trick with wastewater is those surveillance systems are not everywhere. So you're definitely not going to get a comprehensive picture, but it is what's called a leading indicator. You know, if people are infected, you might start to pick up increases in wastewater before people start testing positive and certainly before people start ending up in the hospital. Hospitalizations can still be um, reliable because 
you know, if people truly are sick enough, they are going to go to the hospital. They are going to test you, but that just takes so long to manifest. Ideally, we want to start catching waves before the hospitalizations go up because shortly after hospitalizations, we do tend to see a rash of deaths. Test positivity is out there, but it's so messy because so few people are testing right now. Uh, One of the last times that we had you on the show, we talked about kind of the murky data picture because of the changes in how cases are counted and reported. How how difficult does it make to get an accurate picture right now? Or or have the people you talk to, the epidemiologists, have they just sort of developed their own systems and said, like, we have alternate ways of measuring this? Oh, it is really messy. And I can't think of an epidemiologist or a, a modeler I've spoken to recently who has said, oh, no, this is great. Like the data is awesome. All of our models are doing great. Um, that is definitely not the situation. It makes it harder for the average person trying to get a sense of what's happening at a national scale, at an international scale, even a local scale. Like most counties have stopped doing weekly or daily COVID updates. Like I don't have any sense for what's going on except through hearsay. And that's kind of scary because, you know, I think exactly as we were talking about earlier, I don't happen to know anyone who's sick right now, but that's probably not an accurate assessment of what's going on in my community. Um, And so, you know, I could end up infected uh, because I've lowered my risk inappropriately, for instance. It is a really tough spot to be in. I'm certainly not saying we had to keep every single surveillance system, every single case count metric system going indefinitely. That's a lot of resources and there's a lot of things that the country has to be dealing with right now. But to have dialed it down this low makes it really tough. And for the researchers I was talking about, they rely on those data streams to build models for what could happen a couple months from now, um, up to a year from now, though you know, it really gets fuzzy if you go out more than a few weeks. But the less data they have, the less predictive power they have. So if you start to look at models, you'll see a tentative prediction for what's going to happen this fall. But the less data they have, the bigger the error bars uh, we're going to see. We don't know if a wave is coming, if it's going to be teeny tiny, if it's going to be huge. And that also makes it really tough to prepare things like vaccines, masking interventions, things that would keep people safe. when we come back. So should you go to that indoor wedding? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Sometimes when there's a spike in COVID infections, it's because of a new variant or subvariant. There was Delta in the summer of 2021, Omicron after that, and then BA5, which I think is the one that I got. 
But it's not entirely clear what's driving this bump in infections. It's pretty clear that ever since, well, (laughs) really ever since the virus appeared, it has been evolving. It's been accumulating mutations. And even though we are still technically in the world of Omicron, and that has been the case for a very long time, we know there have been subvariants, you know, BA1, BA2, BA5, and the whole XBB mess. There are definitely new subvariants percolating. And I think that is probably driving some degree of new infection. Even small tweaks in the virus can make it easy for it to get around at least antibodies in our bodies and at least infect us, even if it's not causing as severe disease, if there's pre-existing immunity there. But the changes that scientists are seeing in the virus to the extent that they're seeing them are nowhere near the jump that we saw from like Delta to Omicron, which we would expect to cause a much, much, much bigger wave. Um, new variant or new subvariant is definitely not a binary thing. It, it works in gradations. So if someone is listening to this or, or thinking about all this information, like how should they digest it? Should they change their behavior? Or to what degree should they change their behavior? Yeah, it's a difficult question to ask right now because everyone's perception of the situation is so different. You know, ask people on the street whether they think this is a wave or not, and you probably will get different answers because everyone's criteria are different. There's not something universal. What I can say is what I will try to be doing and Hopefully that is helpful to someone. I am still, I think, on the relatively cautious side. I'm still masking in public spaces, especially when I travel, especially on public transportation. I'm definitely going to keep doing that. If I'm around someone that I worry is vulnerable or I'm not sure that they're vaccinated, I will sort of double down on that. But I also want to make sure I'm seeing people right now. So if that means, you know, more frequent check-ins, I'll do that. Um, I think the goal right now is to take the measures that will enable me to interact safely rather than totally restrict myself from doing anything. So maybe that means testing occasionally before I go out and see people indoors. That means masking so that I can, you know, go to the grocery store with my husband and do all those sorts of things. I think my vigilance level is up right now, but I am definitely not behaving as I was during the winter of 2022, for instance. You're right in that so much of this is individual. Like, I think there are people, I mean, even in my own household, when my family got COVID, my husband had a very mild case of it. I was quite sick. I ended up breaking a rib coughing. Oh, Um, God. And so I'm definitely more on the end of like, I don't want to get that thing again. But people's tolerance for risk is so varied right now. And I do think there is such a level of exhaustion among people in the country that it's really hard to kind of push anyone into some sort of behavior. Yeah, absolutely. I think the past few years have created a lot of inertia, which is why I think for me, at least, I'm happy that every measure I'm taking right now feels very sustainable to me. I realize it may not for everyone else, but that's what I've been trying to spend the past year or so doing finding the things in my daily life that I feel like I can do pretty much every time I leave the house or have someone over. That's not going to be extremes, but things that I will feel comfortable doing, for instance, every winter or every time I see a concerted case rise. So it's very much, I think, paying attention as best I can and responding to that, but not feeling like I have to be on lockdown 24-7. I think it's also important for people to keep in mind that, you know, 
we are very sick of this, but the virus certainly hasn't gotten sick of us. I remain very worried about long COVID, especially, you know, and I, I recognize and I'm very grateful for my vaccines, which have really lowered my risk of severe disease. But the case with long COVID is a lot less clear. And, you know, as frustrating as it is, that reality is keeping me more vigilant than I think I otherwise would be. Speaking of vaccines, um, you know, I took my child to the doctor the other day for a well-child visit and our pediatrician said, oh, well, we're expecting, you know, a new, maybe reformulated booster in the fall. Where, where are we on kind of booster formulation and also vaccination status? All signs point to that newly formulated vaccine um, being ready to roll out uh, really actually in a matter of weeks. It, it is probably going to follow a very similar schedule to the annual flu vaccine, which usually becomes available like August slash September-ish. A lot of people get it in October-ish, and that is supposed to prep you for the surges that tend to start to appear November, December, January. I certainly would encourage everyone who is eligible for this new vaccine to go out and get it. The important thing is that it is going to focus on new versions of the virus rather than using um, the version that started the pandemic all the way back in, you know, end of 2019, beginning of 2020. And that's pretty important, right? Uh, a lot of us do have a baseline of immunity now, but as the virus changes, the vaccine does need to change with it. Also very similar to the flu vaccine. So, you know, a, a lot of people may think, God, I already got three shots, four shots, five shots. I don't want to get another one, but really consider this an update in the same way that you would update your computer to make sure that it's running as smoothly as the first time. We're not asking you to get a brand new computer, but this should be a low stakes thing to make sure your body's up to date. You quoted epidemiologist Caitlin Rivers in your story, and she wrote about these sort of future patterns of disease that we might start to see. I, I wonder what her work and other people you talk to what their work says about how this disease might start to behave in the future. So I think this brings us all the way back to this idea that there probably will be some seasonality to COVID, but it's not really certain if it's set in stone yet. What it looks to kind of be so far, and I'm putting a huge asterisk on so far that I'm going to come back to. So far, there is that big winter wave, smaller summer hump. And if we were to follow that exactly, you know, maybe it would make sense to do vaccines every fall to prepare for the bigger winter wave, um, layer on some behavioral measures to that, more masking in winter, and then some degree of just like being a little more vigilant in the summer, paying attention to the numbers. But there's not a guarantee that this is what we're going to keep seeing. Hmm. It has been four years of this, but also keep in mind like how much changed during the past, you know, <laughs> three plus years, we started out with no immunity. And now most people on the planet have been infected or vaccinated or both. We started out with a version of the virus that went extinct and now we never see anymore. And we've been through so many iterations since people have been infected. A lot of people have died. People have long COVID and it's not completely clear uh, how that's going to shake out in terms of future infections in the long term and how that will in turn affect when and how the virus spreads. It's almost like 
this is a, a first pancake or washout period. Are we sure we can use the past three plus years of data and use that to predict what happens going forward? It's only just now that we have started to kind of sort of reach a more stable state where there's much more immunity and people aren't changing their behaviors as much anymore. So I think that the next you know five to 10 to 15 years will still be really informative and we shouldn't be shocked if things continue to change. What that means is, you know, instead of like, writing down, you know, in your Google calendar now, like every fall, I'm going to do this. And every summer I'm going to do this. We still have to pay attention and prepare for the possibility that the seasonal advice will change a little bit. Maybe this is an unfair question to ask you, but society, America, people around the world have had such a hard time coming to grips, not just with the virus and, and the precautions around it, but with change, but with the fact that the first piece of advice changed and and then another one did. And I, I go back to thinking about an interview I did in 2020 where a, a scientist said to me, science is a process. And I worry that we have a hard time accepting that science is a process. How do you think we can convey that message in a way that that reaches people and that that doesn't turn them off and say like well you said it was this and now that's different how do how do we do that with broadness and and compassion and i don't know resonance it's a subtle thing right it's the kind of situation where it's not going to be a single intervention that changes everyone's mind at once but a kind of slow, gentle inoculation. Um, you know, when I write stories, I try to insert phrases like based on the available knowledge or like there is evidence right now to suggest X, Y, and Z. I really enjoy writing pieces about things that scientists don't yet know, or like things that seem really clear cut and straightforward. And then you lift the top off and it's just like a mess inside. It gives people a sense that so few things, even the things we take for granted aren't simple. And I think just getting used to that idea helps a little bit. Um, it's frustrating. And I think for a lot of people that does, unfortunately means they just close the tab and walk away. <laughs> but when things get as high stakes as a pandemic and people around you are getting sick and dying, I hope that people have a little more appetite for that. That unfortunately may not be the case now, now that the pandemic is in a different place than it was even a year ago, but the pandemics are going to keep coming. So this is something that I think we have to continue to commit to. Catherine Wu, thank you for your diligent reporting and for talking with me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. Catherine Wu is a staff writer at The Atlantic. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong-Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. And TBD is part of the larger What Next family. We're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. You get all your lovely Slate podcasts with no ads. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.
Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.